1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of our great God. Let's pray. Help us, Father, by word now and by spirit, that we rightly hear and understand and apply this your word. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Simon Peter, that gloriously human apostle. John 1.42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Simon was one of the first disciples called into Christ's service. He was a fisherman from Bethsaida of Galanitis. Galanitis was the portion of the Transjordan immediately east of Galilee. Paul, excuse me, Peter had a home in Capernaum about three miles west of Bethsaida in Galilee. He was married and took his wife on journeys to churches. His strong North Country accent marked him as a Galilean. Doubtless, he was influenced by the preaching of John the Baptist. His brother Andrew had been one of the Baptist's disciples. We spend some time now looking at this first of Peter's letters. While there is evidence, and I tend to believe this myself, that behind the Gospel of Mark, is likely Simon Peter's account. There's only two letters attributed to him. Now, Simon Peter is essential in the foundation of the church. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts primarily center around Simon Peter. After that, it's more about the apostle Paul. And when you consider the majority of the New Testament letters are Pauline, um, Amazing how God sets His servants and uses them as He sees fit to accomplish His good purpose. Now, Peter was not illiterate, but he certainly didn't have the training of a Saul of Tarsus. The letter before you, 1 Peter, actually has very good Greek language in it. It has a style to it. It looks like he may have actually dictated it to Silvanus, whom he mentions in chapter 5, verse 12. Second Peter, on the other hand, reads like a Jewish fisherman, writing in a language he could speak, but wasn't very good at writing in. There's actually a difference in the style of the two letters. His audience would be in what we would consider today uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the letter's full of encouragement because it's addressing believers 
in their suffering. It's likely to have been written sometime, we think, between 60 and 68 A.D. 68 is pretty well established as the martyrdom of Peter, being crucified under the reign of Nero, upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord and Savior had been crucified. It appears from the letter he may have had some familiarity with Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Colossians. There's also a reference here of being in Babylon. 1 Peter 5.13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, there's only three possibilities on Babylon here. One is there was actually a military post in um, Egypt known as Babylon. It could have actually referred to the Mesopotamian city, Babylon. But it seems more likely it's probably a veiled reference to the city of Rome. Rome didn't like it when you said critical things about Rome openly. Uh, and so sometimes they'd use language that would be meaningful to believers, but not necessarily to anyone else. The audience may have had some Jewish believers, but more likely Gentile. In chapter 1, verse 18, he uses this language, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold and so on. I don't think that Peter, having been born Jewish, would have referenced what the Lord had granted to Israel and to the people of God before Christ's coming as worthless or futile. It seems more likely he's talking to a Gentile audience. Now, I've titled this series overall, Faithful Living in Fearful Times, because what Peter is going to address here is what it's like to actually be a pilgrim. What's it like to live in this world but not of this world? How do you go about doing that? How does it look? Now, when I planned this series, I had no idea when I set it to begin today. In fact, I didn't know until this morning that November 7th, 2021, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I had no idea. Providence of God. It is estimated that as many as 340 million Christians live in places where there is an immediate Serious threat of persecution. 340 million. And it shows up in so many ways. Voice of the Martyrs shared this from Benin, Africa. John's family were devil worshipers who participated in traditional ceremonies such as worshiping Satan and placing curses on people. When an evangelist came to Jean's house to share the gospel and preached about the peace of God in Jesus, Jean placed his trust in Christ. 
After he became a Christian, his father tried to stab him with a knife and then tried to shoot him with a bow and arrow. Jean fled to his uncle's house where he remained for two years until his uncle told him to leave. Jean is married and has a daughter. They're currently staying with a Christian friend while Jean does farm work to try to survive. My brothers and sisters, we have very little familiarity with such struggles, at least right now. The letter is written, it seems, before the organized persecution, which is going to come. Overall, it shares some large lessons about suffering. Be sure your suffering, number one, isn't self-inflicted. That's always best, folks. Make sure your suffering isn't self-inflicted because you're just a jerk. Okay? Secondly, no suffering is a way of following Christ. Third, suffering is beneficial for the believer. Now, that's when we have a real hard time embracing, isn't it? Suffering is beneficial to the believer. Fourth, suffering doesn't excuse your normal responsibilities. You don't get to say, well, I'm having a bad day, thus I don't have to do the things I'm normally expected to do. And finally, suffering doesn't affect your Christian identity. Those are some themes you're going to see through this letter. You see, my friends, we get disoriented in this world about who we are. We, we struggle with this question. And I would contend that in our current cultural environment, this gets harder and harder because more and more people are vesting themselves in politics, and I think even Christians are vesting themselves more in politics than they are in the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying a Christian shouldn't be involved in politics. You know better than that. But my friend, when political alliances outweigh the king and the kingdom, somewhere, somehow, something got messed up. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. My friend, it is God's plan that you are an exile in this world. It is God's plan that you are an exile in this world. I know people, if you believe that, then you don't want to be involved. No, my friend, you ought to be involved. But your involvement has to be as a child of the king and a citizen of the kingdom first. That defines everything else. I basically think Peter does two things here in these two verses. He teaches us our relationship to this world, exiles, and our relationship to God, elect. 
First, our relationship to this world, exiles. He's referring to those, the language is that somebody from a foreign land. And he calls them those who are in the dispersion, the diaspora, scattered, dispersed. Originally, the word referenced Jews who under the judgment of God under the Old Testament found themselves scattered through the known world. Remember, the methodology of conquest in the ancient world was they would come in, they would conquer the people, and then they'd take a large number of the people in that nation and uproot them and scatter them through other parts of the empire. This was to do a couple of things. One is it kept them from staying home and turning into a bunch of rebels and an underground resistance. Number two, it took them away from everything familiar in hopes of breaking their allegiance to that homeland. Thirdly, it was to try to inculcate into them being part of this new empire, part of this new culture. Now, it succeeded to greater or lesser extents with different peoples. But the Jews did something unique whenever they got to these scattered locations throughout the known world. See, there's only one place in the world they could have temple. Temple had one location, one geographic point, the city of Jerusalem. It had to be on Temple Mount. So they came up with another idea. How do we keep from losing our identity? And thus began what we know as the synagogue, the synagogue, the gathering together place. And the Jews would have gatherings there. Now, never make this mistake. Temple was where sacrifices were done. Synagogue was where prayers were said, the word was taught, songs were sung, there was worship. It was about identity. When Simon Peter summons this word, the diaspora, the dispersion, I don't think he's talking primarily to Jews. He's taking a concept that had been applied to the people of God under the Old Testament, and he's applying it to the people of God under the terms of the New Covenant. You are dispersed throughout the known world. The Lord always has a people out there among the people. It's Jesus' illustration of being salt scattered in this world see the world doesn't acknowledge the believer as anything more than a stranger an alien a part of a scattered bunch of misfits this has always been true you see we we find believers today trying to make peace with at nearly any cost, it seems, with the cultural elites of our day. We all witness Christians trying to prove that we aren't like that, whatever that is. The attempt to find a level of wokeness which will satisfy the critics. Now, friends, please understand this, and I'm not sure how this has ever become been news, but I'll, I'll say it, racism is sin, okay? It has no anchorage in the text of Scripture. Racism is wickedness. There is one race, human, and the, the 
melatonin in the skin, the shape of the eye, the style of the hair, the cultural backgrounds, notwithstanding, there is one fallen race. Here we be. It's us. And it is nothing more than pure wickedness to draw lines in any other fashion. But you see, as we have sought to show the world we're woke, what we have failed to realize is the world demands a level of wokeness that Christianity cannot embrace unless it ceases to be Christianity. And I don't mean in the realm of race nearly as much as I do in the realm of sexuality and identity questions. Carl Truman put it this way, today's cultured despisers of Christianity do not find its teachings to be intellectually implausible. That is, the, the elites don't think that we don't have brains per se. They regard our views as, now hear this, morally reprehensible. And that has always been at least partially the case. Here's what I mean, my friend. If you will not embrace the rainbow as the current flag, and we ought to salute under LGBTQ+, and you fill in whatever other elements of alphabet soup you want there, you will not be thought of as a good person. Young people, let me make this very clear to you. Those of you that call on Christ, hear me. Young people, hear me. You're going to find this world a very awkward place in a lot of ways. If you have the temerity to stand on the text of Scripture and say there's actually such a thing as male and female, man and woman, and that the only thing that is actually marriage, all this other stuff ain't marriage. One thing is marriage. A man and a woman in a covenant together, Lord willing, for life. That's the only, that's, that, that's the only definition of marriage that has been extant until we, the brilliant folk in the 21st century, decided to redefine it. That wasn't even just Christian, that was simply civilization. My friend, hear when I say that, though. I don't say that for us to be hard on people or cruel to people. There's no percentage in cruelty. I can be very kind to somebody with whom I profoundly disagree. I don't expect a Christian behavior out of a non-Christian lowers the bar dramatically. I can be kind. But my friend, you are not doing them any service by lying to them. None whatsoever. And this will create a sense of being exiles in this world. Author of Hebrews will say, Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged. And I love this: they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, he's saying to these Gentiles, but you're fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. You're no longer a stranger and exile to the kingdom. You're actually in the kingdom. But once you come in the kingdom, guess what? You just became a stranger and exile in this world. What does that mean? It means that your native country, in a sense, you're an exile. And it means when you go to other countries, you're in a sense at home because you are part of the kingdom that crosses all the boundaries of all the nation. Mm. Our citizenship, Paul will say in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, please, don't for a moment think that we can somehow make peace with the powers and authorities of this world and of this age. We'll be as peaceable as we are allowed to be. As much as lies within you, live at peace. But oh my friend, we must never capitulate to the world's understanding of themselves or us or reality. For when we do, we have no message any longer. We will have embraced the culture of death. And it is fearful to me there are churches, denominations, who are embracing their own destruction, trying to be relevant. Let me let you on a little secret, children. You ready? Seek to be relevant in this world, and you will condemn yourself to complete irrelevancy. This world does not need you to be relevant. It needs you to be true. Now the world hates that, doesn't like it. But you can never be of any use to them by capitulating. Kindness? Absolutely. Graciousness? Without a doubt. Going out of your way for the sake of others in service and kindness, no matter who and what they are. Yes. Well, they may run over me. This is a surprise. They crucified your Savior. What do you expect? Jesus even said they'll think they're doing God a service by killing you. Welcome to Christianity 101. We are exiles in this world. That's our relationship. But that leads us to the next part, our relationship to God. And our relationship to God is elect. That's what he said. Elect exiles. Oh, he used the word. Elect. Now, if you've been around here any time at all, you're not the least bit surprised by that. And may I point out that if you read the New Testament with any sense of paying attention at all, this ought not come as any surprise either. The people of God are called those whom he has chosen. The elect exiles. <laughs> isn't it astonishing the way Simon Peter, I, brilliant, isn't it? He puts those two things together. You're elect. This is your identity. You're chosen by God while you're exiles in this world. You live for another kingdom, but you're chosen by God. And that choosing 
shows up first to the Father's purpose. In verse 2, he expands on what he means by elect exiles. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Scattered in the world, gathered by the Father. Now, I know some will take that thing. Well, now it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And what that means is this. God looked down the quarters of time. God foreknows everything. And looking down the quarters of time, he saw those who would believe. And those who would believe are the ones whom he chose. That's how we solve the problem. No. You didn't solve the problem. All you did is change the timing for the problem. See, purely on this level, if you're going to affirm the orthodox view of who God is in terms of God's omniscience, let me ask you a question. Did God know before he made anything and anyone exactly what was going to happen? This is a good place to nod. That is orthodoxy. All right? Yup, God knew. So let's run with your position here. God foresaw who would believe, and based on that, he chose them. That's how we get around the problem. No, 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 that doesn't solve the problem. In that view, does God see and know there are people who will not believe? Yup, right? Never heard a theologian use yup, but I'm going to run with it. I'm not a theologian, I'm a pastor, all right? Yep. Did God create them anyway? How many of you chose to be born? Mm-hmm. You see, folks, you didn't solve the problem. You just moved the timing. Besides that, the Scripture never uses foreknowledge merely as God's knowledge of the future. Foreknowledge includes with it the idea of love, of connection, of intimacy. <laughs> when, when the book of Genesis said Adam knew his wife Eve, it wasn't because the Scripture's shy in talking about sexuality. <laughs> if you've ever read Ezekiel, you know better than that. It's because the idea here is intimacy of love. You could as easily do this in a sense. You could say, according to the foreloving of God the Father. Now, there are times it is about God's plan. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did exactly what God knew was going to be done, what God ordained was going to be done, and yet those who did it are responsible for their acts. Now, everybody objects. Well, if, God, if God's ordained the end or ordained what's going to happen, how does God hold us accountable? Because He's God. And you're not. You are responsible for your actions. Well, but huh, Romans 9, right? Uh, then why does he find fault? Who resists his will? Let me give you the Pauline answer. Nay, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Won't like that. You know, that's keeping God up at night, that you don't like it. It bothers him just terribly. Hmm. <laughs> 
Romans 8, 29, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 1 Corinthians, first chapter, verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Hmm. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians 2, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you to be the firstfruits of those saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Or Jesus' own words, many are called, few are chosen. Or I'll take another step further, you didn't choose me. I chose you. John 15. This election is by God's action. Further, this choosing isn't just the Father's work, it's also, in a sense, the Spirit of God's work. Note what he says. In sanctification of the Spirit. You're elect or chosen in sanctification of the Spirit. What do we mean by that? It takes a Trinitarian action to save sinners. God the Father chooses a people. Now we're told the Spirit has to do something. What does the Spirit do? In the sanctification, He sets us apart in the Spirit. What's meant by this? This is the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit must convict and the Spirit must convert. Peter, while he was likely not present for the conversation, at least knew about the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. One of the glories, I think, of the Gospel of John that I always find so fascinating is Jesus says something and people don't get it. Over and over and over again, right? Woman at the well, how about living water? Well, yeah, that's great. Where do I get that stuff? Jesus is talking eternal life and she's thinking plumbing, right? How do I get this water that I don't have to come down here and draw water anymore? <laughs> Nicodemus, you must be born again. Huh? Uh, that doesn't make sense to me. How do, you, how do you go back to mom's womb? And Jesus is talking spiritual birth and Nicodemus is thinking obstetrics. Right? Mm. But what does he say? Unless the Spirit comes, unless there is a new birth, you don't see the kingdom. You never enter the kingdom. Oh, Christian, think about this again. He, in a sense, is echoing something we quoted before, and this is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We ought always to thank God, give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, my friend, when the Spirit of God comes to those people whom God is intending to save, He does something. He brings conviction and He brings conversion the first thing he does is conviction now i'm always it, it's always to me a joyful thing when the lord saves children 
And we've talked about this. Sometimes parents get nervous about their kids being saved. And I always find it charming and an indication of reality because I've had little ones like seven, eight years old, nine years old, they'll talk about how bad a sinner they are. Now, theologically, I'm not going to argue with them. And practically, as a parent and a grandparent, I'm not arguing either. But don't we as adults know their their world could have been worse. There could have been worse sin, worse outcomes. Things that they grew older they've done that would have brought terrible consequences and destruction, right? But my friend, we ought not mock our children when they have a sense of having sin because that's an evidence of the work of the Spirit of God. God is granting them a tenderness of conscience so they realize their sin. Mm. And conversion. He takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Not only set apart by the Father, chosen by the Father, but also by the work of the Spirit. And we're also chosen for a purpose, and that's obedience. What does he say? Elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Paul will say in Romans 1.5, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Friend, when you became a Christian, it was an act of obedience. You obeyed the gospel. You confessed your sins, you repented of your sins, and you trusted in Christ. This is the command of the gospel, and you obeyed it. And you obeyed it not because you are more spiritual than your fellows. You obeyed it because the Spirit of God had already done a work to free you to do that very thing. But that act of obedience is the first act of obedience that is then to be a lifetime of obedience. We are saved. We are brought to obedience to Jesus Christ. Friend, please do not for a moment deceive yourself that you're a child of God if you're indifferent to obedience. Notice I didn't say that you struggle to obey, fight to obey, fail at times to obey, thus the prayer of confession, right? But my friend, if you don't care, if obedience is not in your vocabulary, if purity of mind and heart and life don't appeal to you, then my friend, you do not know Jesus Christ. I don't care how bad you are at it, If there's no desire for it, that is not biblical conversion. You must be changed. Obedience. Robert Layton said it this way, There are none truly purified by the blood of Christ who do not endeavor after purity of heart and conversation, but yet it is the blood of Christ by which all are made fair And there's no spot in them. And that leads us to the fourth part. We're not only chosen by the action of the Father and the Spirit's work and chosen for obedience to Christ, we are chosen then through blood atonement for sprinkling with His blood. 
It is only through the death of Christ on the cross and our union with him that we have this identity as the people of God, elect exiles. Hebrews 9. The blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Romans 3.25, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Christian, why am I hammering these things? The Father has chosen. The Spirit has chosen. The Son has chosen you and brought you to obedience and sprinkling by his blood because this, my friend, is your identity. Strangers, aliens, exiles in this world. That's your relationship to this world. Chosen by the Father. That's your relationship to God. And if you don't grasp the latter, you don't understand how to live the former. If you cannot joyfully embrace His work, His atonement, what He has done, you'll never live rightly as strangers and exiles in this world. This is what guides you. This is what defines you. And when suffering comes, you still see yourself in this way. Listen again to Carl Truman. Article he did called The Failure of Evangelical Elites. Christianity tells the world what it does not wish to hear. I think that's a straightforward conclusion. We should not expect to be embraced by those whose thoughts and deeds contradict the truths of our faith. Nor should we seek to make our faith more palatable, lest the salt lose its savor. Accommodating the world's demands is a fool's errand. Why do I come back to this? Because, my friend, you have to embrace these things side by side. You can't separate them. Exiles in this world, elect in Christ. They go together. And this is what determines them living in this world. Never for a moment forget this world is altered, damaged under a sentence of death, and whether it be the petty dictators of backwater cultures, the self-styled sophisticated elites of Western culture, the hateful jihadists of Asia and the Middle East, or merely the self-promoting hypocrites of American politics, education, media, and entertainment, they are all in rebellion against their Creator and deny His sovereignty. They hate the one true God, for He denies their autonomy. And since they can't get at him, they zealously despise, persecute, and seek to destroy those who have surrendered to him and preach his gospel. Okay, preacher. Gee. That's hard. Yeah. Good. I'm wanting to put a little steel in your spine. Some clarity in your vision. 
some clear thinking in a very muddled world. But let me show you as we conclude. Peter said one more thing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> Exiles, as far as the world's concerned. Elect, as far as the Lord's concerned. Lord, how do I live that? May grace and peace be multiplied <laughs> to you. Oh, my brothers and sisters, we need grace and peace multiplied. Not merely added, multiplied. That'd be good. I need to know his grace and his peace in a world that does not understand grace at all and goes looking for peace in all the wrong places. Matthew Henry looked at these words and said this, those who have the blessing of grace and peace want others to have it. That's good. The best blessing we can desire for ourselves or others is grace and peace. First grace, then peace. Now, and I love his follow-up. Peace without grace is mere stupidity. Peace without grace is mere stupidity. Because that's not true peace. If you've not experienced the grace of God, you may claim peace, but you don't have peace. That's just stupidity. You're doomed. And finally, the increase of grace and peace are the gifts of God. Christian, have you ever wondered how to pray for one another? You ever, yeah, oh, my prayers. What do I pray for? How do I pray? How about you pray for the multiplication of grace and peace to somebody, yourself included? Lord, I need more grace and I need more peace because I live in a very agitated, messed up world. And not just this world in the big sense. I mean, the world in the little sense, right? So we're pretty good at thinking about the big old bad world out here. Big, bad. And what we miss is our little slice of that. That world where I work that world where I go to school, that world that's my neighbor. Christian, here's who you are. Live like who you are and may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Our Father,